Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 676 with Dan Sobeck. Always do the right thing. You know, don't don't serve a bun that's burnt or a burger that's overcooked or, you know, if you see a, a table that's a little bit dirty, wipe it down. You know, I mean, it's it's just always doing the right thing. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Were you aware that 89% of guests will research a restaurant online before dining out? This is why it is so important for you to be mindful of what your online presence is. Visit getbento.com slash unstoppable to sign up for your Bento Box website today. Bento Box empowers restaurants to own their presence, profits, and relationships online. One more time, that is getbento.com slash unstoppable. For years, restaurant owners have been pleading for more integration in their restaurants, and they finally got it. Restaurant 365 is a cloud-based, all-in-one, restaurant-specific accounting and back-office platform that seamlessly integrates with POS systems, payroll providers, and food and beverage vendors. Head over to restaurant365.com slash unstoppable and qualify for 30% off implementation and a free inventory build in Restaurant 365 a value of $5,000. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Dan Sobeck. My man, Dan, are you feeling unstoppable today? Feeling great. <laughs> yes. So, uh, Kansas City native chef Dan Sobeck is a graduate of both Kansas State University in Johnson and Wales, where he studied hotel slash restaurant management and culinary arts, respectively. Sobeck went on to spend most of his career at ultra luxury hotels, including the Dorchester Hotel in London in the Waldorf Astoria in New York City. After consulting with Cisco and taking a few stabs as an operating partner, Sobeck made the move to San Diego in 2015, where he partnered with David Creviston to open the Corner Draft House. You guys have been killing it ever since. I cannot wait to dive into your story to find out how you got to where you are today. But let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quarter mantra. What do you got for us? Yeah, Eric, you know, when you asked me this question, I was thinking about it. Something that I always say to individuals as I'm interviewing them for uh, as candidates to come work for us or when we're doing quarterly reviews or having all staff meetings. So we always do the right thing because it's always the right thing to do. Mm, dive into that. Why, why are you choosing that quote to get us started today? You know, it, it, it sounds like kind of a blanket statement, but when taken in context, it really has a pretty powerful meaning when you think about it. It, it applies to front of house. It applies to back of house. It's like if you're putting up a plate in the kitchen or if you're interacting with a guest in the dining room, um, always do the right thing. You know, don't don't serve a bun that's burnt or a burger that's overcooked or, you know, if you see a, a table that's a little bit dirty, wipe it down. You yeah. know what I mean? It's it's just always doing the right thing. Yeah, I think it's important to echo these things. I think we, we assume that people know to do the right thing, but it's so powerful just to like work it into like your business and to, to make it a mantra within your business and to remind people that like you're empowered to do the right thing. How do you encourage them to do the right thing? What, th- what other things do you do aside from having the saying that encourages them to do the right thing? Well, you know, I, I'm, I've always been very big about leading by example. And, you know, if I'm in my kitchen working or if I'm working in the dining room or if I'm working on a project in the restaurant and I make a mistake, I'm the first one to admit it and own it, mm. you know, and, 
being vulnerable and self-deprecating to some degree, I think is powerful as a leader and as a manager or, or an owner. Um, it's very powerful. It, it gives people permission, one, to make mistakes, yep. but also to own that mistake and fix it. Yeah. And the one thing you mentioned there, vulnerability, when you make yourself vulnerable, it shows that you have nothing to hide. And it mm-hmm. really helps with increasing the, the bond of trust between uh, employee and, and owner, I, in, in my opinion. Um, is that kind of intentional? Do you, do you agree 100%. with that statement? Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Yeah. So where does it make sense to start sharing your story? It seems like you knew uh, from a pretty young age that this was going to be your path. You went to school for it. When, t- take us to that moment where you're like, all right, I'm on board. Yeah, you know, I've, I've always been really into food. Do me a favor. Uh, pick up that mic a little bit. I think you might yeah, sure. feel a little comfortable. Yeah, uh, there you go. I've always been really into food and yep. come from a big Midwest family where everybody would get together all the time. Yep. And there'd always be big buffets of platters of food and different things. Uh, I wanted to go to culinary school out of high school. My dad talked me into getting a traditional degree, which I'm so glad I did. I had a great college experience. Uh, but then after college, I, you know, kind of wandered a little bit and then finally decided I'm going to take the leap and I'm going to go to culinary school. And I ended up at Johnson and Wales University in Charlotte, North Carolina. Okay. And I chose Johnson and Wales because at the time the Culinary Institute of America did not have a graduate program and I didn't want to get another bachelor's degree or an associate's degree. So I, I went to Johnson and Wales and they had just opened this beautiful new campus in Charlotte. All the kitchens were brand new. Uh, had a great experience there, learned a lot, uh, that I did well there. So that opportunity. That led to an opportunity to go work at the Dorchester Hotel in London, which okay. was truly kind of a, a life-changing experience for me. I mean, it really opened... It made my world pretty big pretty quick for a kid from Kansas. Uh, one thing I'm curious about, uh, do you think that having that management background or having that management degree served you in the long run? So you see a lot of people going one direction or the other direction. How do you think that served you specifically? I, I think they stacked up in order. Um, okay. And, you know, I would say, you know, there's always this debate about whether to go to culinary school or not go to culinary school. There are certainly a lot of different paths to get to different points in our industry. Uh, for me, getting kind of both degrees certainly better positioned me in some ways to maybe be more qualified for jobs. Yeah. Um, but I also, there are people that I certainly admire in this industry and that I've worked for and that I've learned a lot from that had very non-traditional paths. Yeah. Well, do you think you would have gotten that? I mean, I, I'm, uh, I have an opinion on this, but do you think you would have gotten that opportunity at Dorchester if you didn't have your It's unlikely. Degree? It's really? unlikely. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I'm interested to hear yeah. that. Um, why do you think so? Well, no, not necessarily the management degree. I mean, I, I got that opportunity because I, I finished first in my program and, and I did well in yeah. culinary school. I was, I was kind of selected for that opportunity, mm-hmm. which was, was a great honor. And I, and I took advantage of it mostly I could. But um, I wouldn't say that the management degree necessarily it's led to that It's almost impossible to like reflect back at that time and to know yeah. exactly what it was to set you up for these opportunities. Whether or not you would have been as prepared going into culinary school if you didn't have that hospitality management degree, who knows? Right. Um, but what about your time at culinary school? Were there any key mentors, any key people that really made an impression on you, either at management school or, or hospitality or um, culinary school? Yeah. So uh, culinary school in particular, I, I would say that going to college first, I, if I'd gone to culinary school straight out of high school, I don't know if I would have taken it as seriously yeah. as I did. It's a big uh, trend I see with people that wait to go to culinary school. They almost always graduate top class. Yeah. I took it. I mean, I, I was a BC student uh, in college when I was doing my undergrad. But when I went to culinary school, I never missed a, a minute of class. Mm. I, I worked full time. I'd, I'd go to school at six o'clock in the morning. I'd get off at four. I'd go to work. I worked a full time job at night where I'd wait tables and cook at it's a big amazing. steakhouse. And like, I mean, it was it, it had to have been hundred plus hour weeks. And yeah. I, I just I just did it. I it's, did it for 18 months straight. It's, it's amazing what that four years will do. 
as far as maturity. And, yeah. and you know, and, to, and when you're spending how much money to go to culinary school, like you want to get every penny out of that experience. The very first day, uh, one of my instructors, he said, okay, uh, the, the course that I took or the, the, the course of study that I took, it was like you would do one class at a time and each class was two and a half weeks. And the very first day of class, the instructor was like, okay, today's class cost you $178.34. If you want to miss one class, he's like, you can just write me a check. You know, I mean, that, that really impacted me. Yeah, it sure did. And, uh, so I never missed a single day of class. And so, but I, and I did have some big influences in culinary school. The Dean of our culinary school at the time was a chef by the name of Mark Allison. He's a, he's a British master chef, which is, you know, the highest designations that a chef can possibly get. Um, extremely talented, very intellectual chef. Uh, he's, he's still active in the industry. He's no longer associated with Johnson and Wales, but, uh, he's someone that I've kept in contact with and he's served as a mentor to me over the years when I'm looking for jobs or considering different opportunities. So really dissect who this individual is. What is it about this person that draws you to him? So, you know, there, you meet all these different characters in culinary school and and a lot of, a lot of the instructors, maybe they were chefs at one point in time in various roles, uh, and you you kind of find people that you relate to a little bit. And this chef in particular, when I chose to go to culinary school, I made the decision. I said, I want to go work in the finest restaurants and the finest hotels in the world. I want to get the most experience that I possibly can and learn. I want to be one of the best. And this chef had done that. He worked, you know, he went to hotel school in, in the UK and he was from a blue collar family in, in Wales and or Liverpool. And... Uh, he worked his way up through the ranks. I mean, he went to you know he went to hotel school and then he went and worked at as many Michelin star restaurants as he possibly could and earned his chops. And then he decided that he wanted to have a wife and family, and so he got his teaching credential and started teaching. And then he kind of got to the pinnacle of teaching too. He was the dean of one of the top culinary schools in the United States, which is pretty impressive. Thinking about who he was, I mean, you're you're listening, you're kind of laying out his uh, his resume, right? But mm-hmm. what were his values? Who, how did he carry himself? What were some of the things that he did and said that really impacted you? I, uh, you ask how he carried himself. He's he was a, a very imposing figure. I mean, just extremely meticulous in everything that he did, from his appearance to the way that he would present in class to his professionalism when interacting with students or other professors or uh, or culinary instructors. Um, and his and his knowledge about food and technique was just he was an encyclopedia of technique, which I mean I could sit there and speak to him for hours um, outside of the classroom he was also a very amicable guy he was he was if if you took things as seriously as he did, you immediately earned his respect, mm. which was hard to get, but once you were there i mean you're you know it's like you're one of his mates or something so yeah um, but I mean some of the things i'm I'm pulling like some of the big lessons from this part of your story I mean go after those who have done what you want to do and then show them you want it show them that you care and they will take you under their wing they, they will put you on the right path um what kind of like what was there any like single piece of advice that he gave you setting you up um before you know on your on your departure going into your career that kind of stayed with you that you can share with us right now in this day gosh it's been a it's been a while yeah, it has <laughs> been a while i don't know if i could i don't know if i could say one specific quote um did he open it, any doors for you at least or uh, no, but he certainly gave me a lot of very good advice over the years. Um, and he probably provided an introduction or two. I, I was one of the, the people in culinary school, whenever there was a food festival or something like that, I would always volunteer to help whatever visiting guest chef was there. And he might've facilitated some introductions at some point, which, 
um, you know, could have possibly led to some opportunities down the road. But more than anything, he served as a great mentor when I was making some early career choices, trying to weigh what might be the best opportunity. Um, and he, he had a very good way of always kind of putting it back on me. You know, yeah. you, when you're a young person and you're trying to make these big decisions, you kind of just want to be told what to do. Yeah. Um, but he did a good job of forcing me into positions where I was ultimately the one that would... How, do you remember how he put it back on you? Like how he was guiding you? Uh, very diplomatically. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he, he'd, be, he'd mostly just get me to talk like this until I kind of talked myself into or out of something. Okay. Um, but... Yeah, he was a good mentor that way. I love it. Um, so moving on, um, you said it was the Dorchester was the opportunity you got from this place, right? Yeah. Um, what was it like? Take us take us to that moment of walking through the doors and starting. Was this an internship or your full time job? Uh, it was an apprenticeship, apprenticeship? that, that okay. kind of led into gotcha. um, some employment, and I wasn't there at a, a, a very long time. I mean, I was there probably the apprenticeship lasted three months. I think I stayed on another three months. I did some stages at some other restaurants in London. Any experience that I could get, mm-hmm. and um, it was amazing. We, I, we, I was able to help open uh, Alain Ducasse's three Michelin star restaurant there, Ducasse, which it was an unbelievable experience. I mean, I I spent as much time as they would possibly let me spend in that kitchen, and they barely let me touch food. But <laughs> any opportunity that I got, I I took. And this is back when they also had a restaurant called The Grill, which um, they had one Michelin star, and that this is back in two thousand eight. Okay. Which that was kind of the when molecular gastronomy was starting to kind of reach its tentacles beyond Spain. And so this restaurant, The Grill, the chef there was doing a lot of interesting things with molecular gastronomy, which I didn't even know what that was until I got there. So that was certainly a uh, eye-opening experience. Um, but more than anything, I, there were chefs from all over Europe that worked there. So the opportunity to work with so many different cultures and people from so many different backgrounds was was really fascinating for me just be, again being a kid from kansas you I mean, know yeah I mean, i'm was, just trying to wrap my mind around this i feel like most people get into the industry working at the grill down the street not at the their first i mean were you working in restaurants before you went yeah to so i i had my first restaurant job when i was 14 okay. I, was, I was a dishwasher worked my way up to in a little family-owned pizza place in in lenexa kansas where i grew up and then I worked in restaurants all through high school, all through all right, college. Okay. I mean, it was. It's, I was going to say I'm trying to wrap my forever, mind around yeah. going like straight into culinary school and then landing at one of the best uh, facilities in the world. It must have just been like holy shit. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, being at these these uh, more traditional what, what 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 most people are used to in the industry, right? Your your mom and pop. What was what was the difference? Like how how did the difference impact your perspective on the industry to this day? I. Uh, Probably more than anything, it kind of created this desire to be constantly learning and growing and developing because more than anything, it was it was just an eye-opening experience to how big the world is, you know, and how many different... Perspective, co- right? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So, in what ways do you learn and push yourself to grow? Like, what things were would you have not discovered otherwise well i certainly developed a travel bug i okay. mean I, that that was a that was a big thing um and it really pushed me far outside of my comfort zone I, you know after living in london i was not intimidated to go move to new york city um and i was gifted a, a couple of cookbooks um while i was there from different chefs that i worked with when you know i I'm, I'm a, i've always been a very curious person so i started asking a lot of questions and so i was given a couple of cookbooks um 
And so, I mean, I've, I'm, I bet that I, their way of pacifying you. Like maybe you can find yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think it was like, stop asking me, <laughs> stop asking me so many questions here. Go read a book. Yeah. Go sit in the corner. No. Um, and I continue to, to, I, I've got a ton of cookbooks at home every year, every year. My wife's just like, okay, <laughs> you know, are we going to give some of these away or what? But, um, you know, constantly learning, constantly trying new things. Um, so you made your way to New York City. Um, what what made you settle on or settle right? Quote unquote, settle. You ended up at the. Um, forgive me, I had it written down. The Waldorf Astoria. Yes. So yeah. how did you get that opportunity? Well, the Dorchester kind of led to that opportunity. Um, I've been very fortunate in my career that I've not really had to interview for a whole lot of jobs. A lot of jobs that I've had have kind of led to the next one. Mm-hmm. Um. And when you get to a certain level in hotels or in restaurants, I mean, everyone kind of knows everybody else. And um, so anyways, yeah. So Dorchester led to the Waldorf. And uh, at the time in New York, I mean, this is like 08, 09. Um, it was kind of a weird place, New York City, you know, with the recession kind of settling mm-hmm. in. And um, I, I really, there were parts of the Waldorf experience that I really enjoyed. I mean, there aren't a whole lot of places in the world where you can host a six course dinner for 5,000 people in their grand ballroom and it's executed at a certain level that you know you just don't see a lot of different places anymore um, just very old school what were the little things that they were doing at the Waldorf that allowed them to execute this level that you took with you or that you've taken with you and you apply to this day well to some degree it was a bit of a food factory you know I mean they would they would do on average 5,000 hot meals a day right okay and between feeding the three to 4,000 staff members that were there every single day to all of the different banquet functions, to all of the different restaurants. I mean, it was, it was a bit of a food factory. And so learning to do high quality food at scale is really an art. Um, but at the same time, it does take some of the romance out of cooking. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but more than anything, a hotel that size and, and particularly the way the Waldorf was structured at the time, it was kind of its own little city, its own ecosystem, you know, where it had a very traditional brigade system where it was, Garmanger and saucier and you had a you know the butcher shop and seafood and it was all very fragmented and um it was a union environment too which is not always the most pleasant to be around um but like i said i learned a ton and and that led to my next my next job which was so after that i went to go work for west pace's hotel group for horse schultze which yes. i believe is someone that you've uh interviewed on this Twice. show before yeah. yeah it's an amazing guy so amazing so let's spend some time here what was it about this guy it sounds like he made an impact on you because yeah. you even mentioned me in, to me in our back and forth emails that like you saw that horse Solchi was a past guest like how did he influence who you are today what was it about him that left an impression well so obviously for, for listeners that don't know who horse Schulte is he basically was the he was the chairman of ritz carlton and mm-hmm. he built ritz carlton into the the marquee brand that it was and and still is to some degree uh after ritz carlton sold to marriott mr schultze as well as a few other ritz carlton executives broke off and said "Eh, i don't really want to work for marriott so they started their own company called west paces hotel group okay and they they owned a couple of properties and then they uh also had a management company with several brands that they operated where they would go in and take over properties and operate them uh, one of those brands was called Capella, and the first Capella brand hotel to open was Capella Telluride in Colorado, and I left the Waldorf to go work uh, in Telluride to help open that hotel. We actually had two properties that we operated in Telluride. We had the Inn at Lost Creek and Capella Telluride, and having been through sort of the Hilton uh, 
rigmarole of, of training and ethos and all of that thing when I was at the Waldorf and same thing at the Dorchester and for a few other uh, companies that I've worked for in the past, the training uh, and hospitality education that I received working for Mr. Schultz at West Paces was by far and away the best experience I've ever had. All right, dissect that a little bit. What was it that he did that went above and beyond the other places you worked? Well, his, his level of engagement with every single employee was incredibly impressive. Uh, and he remembered everybody's name and was never too busy to talk to anyone. Uh, and you could just feel his energy that he lived and breathed everything that he was talking about when it comes to hospitality, which is, you know, his number one rule was keep every guest. And, mm. you know, then the, there, I mean, I could go on and on and on and on and on about his philosophies when it comes to hospitality and leadership and leading by example. And, um, but more than anything, it was just the energy that he brought into every situation and every guest interaction and his enthusiasm for that business and that industry, it just was, it was absolutely infectious. What were the things that he would do to like pound these, these values into you, these standards into you? Cause I know, I mean, I, I know he was really big on repetition, on, on repetition, right? Yeah. So get into like what that looked like and what that felt like and what it was like to be a part of the, the horse Soltzy team. Um, can you get like, can you paint that picture? Well, I will say it wasn't always easy. I mean, yeah. the, the man's expectations are as high as anyone's expectations could possibly be. I've heard he's softened a little bit over the years. That, <laughs> he used to well, be pretty. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm sure that's true. Um, you know, I being in the colon, on the culinary side, I will say that um, he provided an environment where uh, if we would request certain pieces of equipment or if we had ideas about concepts, he would certainly embrace that. And oftentimes he would push it farther where mm. it's like, okay, that sounds nice, but you know, what if we tried this, this, and, and, and his whole team was like that too. The, exe- yeah. the executive chef of the company, Peter Schock, but everybody was engaged on every level, right? So, you know, I mean, I, I was not very high up when I started with that company. When I left that company, I was the number two person in culinary for their flagship property. This is a Thai Fifth Avenue hotel in New York. And I could call Mr. Schultz on his cell phone. I talked to P- chef Peter Schock all the time. And, you know, we would talk about operational challenges that we would have and we would work through it. And, um, you know, it, it was, and I, I never, I never got this opportunity, but I know particularly in Ritz Carlton, a lot of the chefs, he would have them travel to other properties all over the world and really embraced that, um, idea of education through experience and through broadening of horizons. And, um, I always really admired that about him. I mean, that's, that's uncommon yeah the big things i'm pulling from your description of horse is the the fact that he would take the time to listen he showed he cared he he would empower his people by letting them be creative and then then giving them the tools and resources they would need to execute that creation and then he would also let them travel to further allow them to uh, get that experience and that influence that they would need to be creative right um Mm -hmm. the other thing that i i picked up just from knowing shorts and interviewing um, shorts or shorts horse short schultz it's a tough one to spit yeah. out sometimes um, <laughs> is that he's really great with a repetition and not mm-hmm. just saying like, this is the standard, but repeating it literally every day. He'd yeah. go through one standard of service every day until he got to the like, was it 27? Yeah, 27, 27 standards. 27 standards. Service, yeah. And then when we got to the, the 27th standard, you start back at number one mm-hmm. and it was this endless cycle, just pounding repetition. This is how we are. This is how we do it. And, and what's the power in that? Well, it's it certainly when, when everyone, understands in an organization when everyone understands exactly what the expectation is then 
all you have to do is live up to that expectation. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times in business and particularly maybe in the hospitality industry or every business, sometimes employees or even managers are left wondering what expectations are. Yeah. And if you're not receiving constant feedback and if you don't, if those expectations aren't clearly communicated to you, then how do you know? Right. Exactly. I mean, it's so when you when you lay it out like that, you know exactly what the expectations are. That takes a lot of pressure off yep. of trying to wonder and figure out. No what question. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I think that and, and you know, the Rich Carlton organization under Horst Schultz's leadership won the Malcolm Baldridge Award, mm-hmm. which is just like the pinnacle in business of, you know, excellence. And it was like, OK, we won it. Now we have to win it again, you yeah. know, or we have that's to get the new we, standard. Right? right. That's yeah. a new standard. So, um, you know, that's that's when you're when you're constantly striving to improve every single day. I think it's important to understand what the minimum expectations yeah. are. And then yeah. it's maybe easier to achieve, achieve well, them and exceed them. You, you got to paint that picture of perfection. And that's a line from uh, Rudy Mick, who's been a, a repeat guest on the show. And that's what he's doing by listing these standards every day, because it's not enough just to train somebody once and then re- do a recurrent training in like a year from now. Like every day it's it's repeating. So like it's 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 like burnt into your DNA that you, you can't forget. And yeah. there's just so much power in that recurrent training and that never ending process of training uh, in, in creating systems to work it into your day to day. Right. So mm-hmm. that's, it's something that doesn't get looked over. It's, it's, I'm sure it's on a manager's checklist in place to go through the standards. Right. Oh, Is of course. Not? Yep. You well, read, you, you, probably read, saw those you read one every single day <laughs> yeah. during, during lineup there, yeah. the checklist they're they're everywhere. I mean, yeah. it's, it's hard to miss and it's, that's intentional. Any other nuggets you, you pull from Horst, uh, Horst Schultze or uh, this, this establishment before moving on to the next stage in your life? Well, within that organization, uh, I had a lot of great mentors. Um, my executive chef in Telluride uh, was a gentleman by the name, gentleman by the name of um, Chef Kenny Gilbert. Um, chef Kenny was on season seven of Top Chef okay. and has gone on to open several successful restaurants around Florida. Uh, and he was, he was a big mentor for me and he was in the Ritz Carlton ecosystem for several years before that. And, um, I learned a lot from Kenny, uh, other leaders in that organization as well. And, and after that in New York, um, just and everybody shared similar values of just wanting to be the best and, and everything that we did, whether it was food or hospitality or service, you know, I mean it, everybody, they, they did a, incredible job of um finding and training really high quality staff you know i mean that's that's really what it kind of boils down to and that's that's a hard thing to do it requires a lot of patience and persistence i love it um so why move away from this organization it seems like you've you your goal was to be on the teams of the best restaurants and hotels in in the world that's what you said when we started this episode Mm -hmm. you got there why leave so I was in New York, uh, as I, as I kind of mentioned briefly earlier, I was working at the Satai Fifth Avenue Hotel. We had lost our executive chef uh, the first few months after opening, and I'd kind of held the, the place together for several months, and um, it was 100-hour weeks, and uh, the way that that company was kind of shifting its focus to more of the Asian markets and developing countries... Mm-hmm. Uh, truth be told, my girlfriend and I were starting to get pretty serious at the time and yeah. she, she had already moved from Telluride to New York with me. And so I started talking about opportunities in China and she, <laughs> she was ready to pack her bags and move back to California. So, uh, 
So yeah, so I took a I took a break from the kitchen for a few years. Um, that's when I started working for Cisco in the city. Do you uh, know the reason why they're looking at Asia? What was it about that market? Can you can you dissect well, some of the strategy? It's a little bit the there? the luxury hotel market in the United States is a little bit saturated. Yeah. Um, particularly for the segments that they were kind of looking into development. So they're looking um, to to be where they could be at the leading edge and where there was opportunity. Correct. Okay. Yeah. There's a lot of investment in the luxury hotel segment in. In China and South Korea and Hong Kong and Taiwan and uh, many uh, some of the, some of these places and so there's there's tons of new development and opportunity there uh, but not as much stateside you see you see a lot of sort of boutique hotels popping up in yeah. in secondary markets but those a lot of those are smaller footprints than what they were that company was kind of focused on so now you have this incredible resume right you you've got the education you've got the experience not just any experience but with the best establishments in hospitality in the world what's going through your mind what what's the next step at this point what what did you want at this point i uh, i needed to catch my breath I to be that. honest, um, you know, I, my girlfriend, now wife, my girlfriend at the time was kind of like, what is the point of paying what we pay to live in New York City? We're not even experiencing it or you're not even experiencing yeah. it. You know, what's what's the point? Um, so, you know, she she kind of shook me out of it. And, and it was it was a nice break. I, I wouldn't say that I loved doing the Cisco thing, doing consulting and doing sales. Um I had a pretty good run in the city. They were well positioned after after 0809. There was a lot of consolidations that happened, not just in the restaurant industry, but also on the distributor side. So Cisco had acquired a uh, specialty produce company out on Long Island. They had acquired a company called European Imports, which brought in all these like super high end cheeses and oils and vinegars and olives, and and they also opened a uh, Buckhead um, meat processing plant in uh, Jersey City, where they were able to do all kinds of dry aging and really interesting custom cuts of meat for, for different establishments. So they were really well positioned probably for the first time ever to go after the high end segment in New York city, but they didn't really have many people that knew how to take that product to market or really understood that world very well. So, uh, you know, they were trying to get me to be a customer forever, which this is kind of typical, I think of what a lot of distributors do. And eventually the conversation shifted to, well, why don't you come work for us? <laughs> uh, and finally, after about the 14th try, I said, okay, let's try it out. So what exactly with, with all these skills that you've acquired up to this point, how did you come in and how did you make a difference at Cisco? What were you doing exactly? Uh, I had to get them to change the way they operated a little bit. Um, there's a couple things that, you know, there's, there's for most, so I would say probably all Cisco companies across the country, you have hard cutoff times for ordering every day where you have to have your order in by four o'clock or three o'clock or five o'clock for next day delivery. In New York City, that doesn't work. Every, every chef of every restaurant in New York City, they don't place their orders for the next day until dinner service is over. You know, some restaurants will get two or three deliveries a day. They get a delivery in the morning for the breakfast rush. They get a delivery at lunch for the lunch rush. And they get a delivery for dinner for the dinner rush. Okay. Because they just don't have enough storage or refrigerated storage. Small spaces in New York City. Yeah, if you're doing a lot of volume. Um, So, you know, I I was the only salesperson in the entire company that was allowed to place orders up until 10 o'clock at night. That was the only way I was able to do business with some of the restaurants that I was able to get to do business with us. And, and I did bring a bit of a network. Well, I was um, going to say, you're also a well-established, well-respected. I mean, you're working in all these great establishments. Yeah. Uh, you have this network. You're, I'm sure you're, you're rolling the same social, social, shirk, wow. social, social circles. Why would I even attempt to say that? It's, it's a <laughs> um, sure, it served you really well. Yeah, it did. You know, uh, you'd be surprised. You know, everybody's your friend until you try and sell them yeah, something, right? Yeah, I get that, but, yeah. 
And, you know, Cisco is always and continues to have this stigma with a lot of chefs where it's like, oh, I don't want to buy my flour from the same company I buy my bleach from or, you know, however they want to say that. Uh, For me, purchasing has always been about, okay, well, I'd rather buy it from the guy who buys it by the railroad car rather than the pallet. You know, he's getting a better price. But um, at the end of the day, a lot of it comes down to relationships and how much value you can bring to a relationship. How Uh, long were you at Cisco? So I did about 18 months in New York City. And then, as I was kind of saying before, my wife, my girlfriend at the time and I, we were started getting pretty serious. And we decided that we wanted to move somewhere to start a family. And so it would, the, she's from San Diego. Yeah. So it was a pretty brief debate about whether it was going <laughs> right? to be Kansas City or San Diego. So yeah, it's pretty gorgeous out here. I um, ended up transferring with, San Diego, with, with San Cisco to San Diego, which actually ended up being a great thing because I knew virtually no one in the restaurant scene in San Diego uh, when we first moved out here. So it was a nice introduction. You know, I got to walk in and out of every about every kitchen in the city. Um, so I did a couple years with Cisco out here before. So not everybody gets that perspective of um, seeing the other side of the ordering, right? Yeah. What what things did you get to see that you think has served you well to this day that? you wouldn't have otherwise realized unless you got that perspective. It was an incredible education. I, as I said, I, I really didn't enjoy a lot of parts of that job. Um, but my education and my experience certainly served me well. I, 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 I always did well with new openings because I've opened dozens of restaurants in my career. So I can walk into a restaurant that's getting ready to open and say, okay, have you talked to this person? Have you thought of this? Have you talked to Coke? Have you negotiated this? Have you, you know, I can run down my checklist. So you have like and, an internal checklist that you could run through things to consider that a lot of people don't consider. Exactly. And yeah. Is that what you were doing when you were working with Cisco going with like assisting restaurants and opening? Is that kind of, was that like, that was kind niche? of my niche. That was, okay. that was how I was successful to some degree. So what things get specific, some specific things that you, you learned there that you didn't realize before this opportunity? Well, I didn't understand, uh, kind of the food supply chain. Right. You know, when when a Cisco rep walks in your back door and you order a case of frozen chicken tenders from them, six different people got paid when that one box of chicken tenders got sold. Right. You know, the farmer who raised the chicken, the processing plant that slaughtered the chicken, the company that breaded the chicken, uh, the company that marketed, yeah, Yeah. packaged (laughs) and marketed the chicken and then whoever the distributor was. And then the restaurant sells it. Right. So um, just kind of understanding that supply chain and then also learning about the broker world and and kind of understanding who all those big pl- players are and then learning a lot about uh, things like manufacturer rebates and prime vendor agreements and all of these things that are available that a lot of people might not necessarily know about so as restaurant owners. You just dropped a lot on us. Pick one of those things that you feel confident about going deeper in and like really lay it out for us how, how knowing this has served you in the long run. Okay. Um, Putting you on the spot here. It's what yeah. I do. Like Pullback layers. Well, there's uh, there's a lot. Um, <laughs> the one most important thing, I would actually go back to saying that finding an individual or company that you really think has your best interests at heart. And when I say that, I mean everybody needs to make a buck, right? But if you have somebody in your corner that really is going to go to bat for you and that shows up Every time you have a meeting on time, doesn't waste your time, respects your time. It's always bringing new ideas, adding value, bringing you, you know, oh, this is what the guy's doing down the street. It's working or it's not working. Did you hear about this new thing? This guy's opening, this guy's closing, you know, someone that really is, is working and has your best interests in, in mind, not just trying to make a quick buck. 
that's what I look for in vendor partners. So how do you know? Like, I mean, how do you see through the shit? I guess I've been doing it. Long <laughs> you develop I, an eye for it. Yeah, I, I don't know if there's one uh, silver bullet when it comes to that, but I, you know, obviously you have to pay attention to things like pricing. Uh, if there's a lot of vari- variables with your pricing that you're receiving from your vendors, obviously there's some issues there. Or if you get pricing from one vendor and it's 20% less than the other vendor. Either it's someone's playing a game or someone's trying to rip you off or it might not be apples to apples when it comes to product. But um, I mean, it, unfortunately, there, it takes time. Is there integrity? Are they doing what they say they're going to do? Or are they, like you said, they're That's showing incredibly up important. When, yeah. when they say they're going to show up? Can you count That's on That's incredibly that? important. Yeah. When, when you were saying that, it reminded me, I, I can't remember where I heard this quote, but it's a, it's a powerful quote and it says, it's something I'm paraphrasing paraphrasing here, but it's like surround yourself with the people who want to see you be successful. You know, yep. go to people who who it's clear that they it, it, they want to see you become successful. Those are the people that are going to be there for you, who are going to support you, who are going to encourage you, who are going to pick you up when you feel like throwing in the towel. Right? They're gonna, and that's kind of what I'm what I'm getting from you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's another quote uh, that that I kind of comes to mind, and in that I say this to my staff sometimes too, and it's like. I'll support you as much in your failures as I will your successes, mm. right? And I, I think that's kind of powerful. And, and that, that goes with, I think that goes with vendor relationships too, where it's, you know, if you have a, a, a month that's kind of tough and they're, they're going to support you and work with you a little yeah. bit, you know, those are the kind of partners that you want. What was the number one thing you saw people not consider when opening a restaurant that you're like, did you consider this? And they're like, no, I didn't. What's that like one thing? working in a restaurant? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I laugh a lot. I, you know, I look at deals all the time and I, I, I'm always looking for new projects and a lot of people that I know, you know, I have friends that are in finance and I have friends that are attorneys and whatever else. And they're all, Oh man, that's such a tough business. And I'm like, you know, the statistics are skewed because, and I had this, this is definitely something I learned working for Cisco. I, I watched so many restaurants open and close and people lose fortunes. And what I always say is the statistics are skewed. Yes. Three out of five restaurants fail. And you know, after two years and, and at four, at four out of five fail within the first five years. Well, I want to know the statistics of how many restaurants open that are open by people who have never worked in restaurants before. You know, like I wouldn't go open I talk a, to a lot of them. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't go open a dentist's office. Yeah. I wouldn't go open a car dealership. I don't know. I know nothing about that business. I've spent my entire career working in restaurants. Yeah. I I'm comfortable in this yeah. space, you know? Yeah. Um, so I would encourage anyone that's thinking about opening a restaurant, go and talk to as many restaurant owners as you can. Try to get talked out of it. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know? you, not, if you're passionate about yeah. it and it's something you really want to do, go for it. Sure. But, Try and educate yourself a little bit about yeah, it first, or, realistic. or surround yourself by people that are very knowledgeable. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in the people with the people who did not have the experience who were getting into this, uh, what were the common traits you saw from those who had the zero experience but were able to execute? Uh, I definitely experience running other businesses helps. Mm-hmm. Um, just having a yeah, at the end know, of the day, fundamental under- yeah, fundamental understanding of accounting yep. and. Uh, purchasing and receiving an inventory and just those concepts I think are important. Um, and then just drive, you know, I mean that no quit attitude yep. uh, is certainly important because I, there's a lot of long days and short nights. I think being willing to admit that you don't know and going after people with humility saying, I don't know, can you help me? Yeah. Uh, and getting straight to that point before like failing 
in swallowing your pride, right? Just just admit right away that you don't know. It's not. It's it's okay to get help. You know, it's okay Absolutely. to get answers, right? Yeah. Um, at this point in your career, are you are you investing? Are you managing restaurants? I know you were a partner in a few restaurants before coming out to San Diego. Is that correct? Yeah. So I've actually. It's kind of funny. The market in Southern California the last couple of years has just been really, really crazy. I mean, there's been... Good way or bad way? Uh, both. It's good in terms of expansion and growth. It's bad in terms of looking for really good deals to you know open new projects, that sort of thing. I mean, rents are extremely high. Mm-hmm. Acquisition prices for existing businesses have been very inflated. Yeah, property doesn't stay in the market long here. It doesn't. Well, it, it's starting to soften up a little bit, but... Uh, it's made it very difficult for independent operators to sort of grow and expand. Um, so, you know, that's, it, it, I, I've actually, it's, it's, I've been doing quite a bit of consulting lately, okay. uh, which has been kind of fun. Um, I've learned a lot and, uh, kind of got to learn about some different parts of the industry that I haven't been that involved in before. I just helped this nightclub project in downtown San Diego and that was a completely eye-opening experience. I've not. I'm not. I've not been. I'm very, making a note to come back. Yeah, to I've not been very uh, plugged into that space before. Uh, it's a totally different animal. All right, nightclub uh, eye-opening. We'll come yeah. back to that. Um, so, I guess the, what I'm getting at, I've, I've, I saw one thing in your LinkedIn account, Coco Bolos. You're there. You yeah. had like an eight-month run with this organization. Uh-huh. Um, did, were you there from the day one? Did you come in? Well, was there, take us through what that situation was. Yeah, so uh, some very good friends of mine, family friends uh, in Kansas City, they're developers. Uh, they opened this um, sort of mixed-use shopping center uh, with like a offshoot of the Museum of Natural History out of New York City. And uh, there was a big Sinopolis movie theater and Pinstripes, one of these kind of bowling alleys with a restaurant and bar and all this stuff. Um, and then retail and some restaurants. And as kind of a little side project, they decided to open this restaurant called Coco Bolo's. Okay. I'm going to stop you there. Yeah. Because we need to go. All right. I just realized we haven't taken our first break to thank our sponsors. So we're going to take okay. a quick break to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back. Bento Box is more, much, much more than just another restaurant website developer. It is a hospitality platform designed to disrupt third-party services that come between the restaurant and the guest. Bento Box puts the restaurant first and offers tools that drive high-margin revenue directly through the restaurant website. These tools allow you to easily update menus, promote and sell events, share your press and media attention with the world, sell gift cards, take catering orders and much much more in other words bento box puts you in control so that you can focus on what matters most your restaurant bento box is trusted and loved by over 5,000 restaurants worldwide because they empower restaurants to own their presence profits and relationships online sign up today at getbento.com slash unstoppable one more time that is getbento.com slash unstoppable all right we're back and you were just getting into uh this project yeah coco bolos so it's kind of an interesting story i mean i I won't get too deep into it um but these good family friends of ours they they uh opened this restaurant called coco bolos and it was kind of an offshoot of a restaurant from where i did my undergrad at kansas state university by the same name coco bolos okay and they wanted to kind of take, it was everybody's favorite restaurant in Manhattan, Kansas, and they wanted to take the best elements of that and kind of bring it to Kansas City, but give it kind of a more um, metropolitan feel, you might say. So they hired this big name chef in Kansas City, and he came in and put his own twist on it. And 
it ended up being, you know, they kind of alienated these two groups of people where they, all these K-State people were really excited because Coco Bolos was coming to Kansas yeah. City and then they had this big name chef and all these followers of this big name chef they were like oh cool new restaurant by this chef we love and it wasn't really that either so they kind of had two built-in uh you know customer bases and they didn't really they were both being misled they were both being <laughs> they were both disappointed one yeah because they were anticipating not being misled but anticipating something yeah and that it wasn't what they were expecting right so other than that what else was going on here well, so they, they asked me after after several months of this where just they just couldn't really get any traction, they asked me to come in and take a look at it and see if it was something I might want to become involved in. And so um, this is when I was living in San Diego working for Cisco, and I was kind of over Cisco okay. at the time. Involved in what way? Uh, to take over the restaurant. Okay, gotcha. Uh, so I came in, and it was kind of a crummy situation where people had been stealing money and stealing other things. And so, I mean, it was kind of a like bad reality TV restaurant rescue sort of scenario there though. So you you made a good go at it, right? Yeah. Yeah, I did. And and we accomplished a lot of good things. Mm -hmm. Uh, by the end of it, I, you know, we left on kind of mutual good terms where we kind of decided that my role was done there and, and we both kind of felt that way. And, they decided they were going to go a different direction, kind of a more traditional to the college town experience, which was different than what we had set out to do when I first arrived, which was which I was fine with. Um, so, yeah, it was a good, it was a great experience. I mean, I certainly learned a lot. It was it was kind of a good example mm-hmm. of people getting into a restaurant that don't really understand. They just want to own every, a restaurant, but don't want much to do with it. Well. N- n- not even necessarily that, okay. but just understanding fundamentals of how restaurants operate and, you know, under, having, I guess, the right expectations of the way things are going to happen. So knowing what happen. you know now, reflecting mm-hmm. back at this time, um, what were the fundamentals that were missing? What things are, are my listeners possibly missing in their restaurants listening to this right now? You know, anymore, a couple things. When I look at deals now, um, I look at the location you know I, as a chef i used to sit around and daydream about all the different concepts i wanted to open and and now i look for a great location and then i take a hard look around the area and say what's missing you know or is there something that's being underserved in this community or missing from this community mm-hmm. what's the community like can it support this type of concept that i'm considering demographics um, what's the what's like the competition this. like is there anything like it in the area or can i do something maybe a little bit better than somebody else is doing already basically doing um, a swot analysis yeah more or less yeah um, and then, you know, also what's the deal look like, you know, how much money has to be raised what's the ROI going to be like, is it going to be one year, two years, five years, you know, what's the long-term play. Um, so those are, you know, some important things that I take into consideration, which even five years ago, I probably wouldn't have focused on those things as much. Okay. You said there was a lot of good things that you did. You did well. What were the good things? How, like reflecting back on what you liked from this experience, what were those things? I, uh, it really forced me that that experience in particular really forced me out of the kitchen uh, because I was sort of the operating partner. So I was I was sort of the general manager and the executive chef. Uh, so the first thing I did was well we I mean we had to sort of let go of a lot of people, which was really unpleasant. But then we were, we were we were able to retain some good staff and and so then it was flipping the menu, uh, which that's always the fun part for me. Um, but then it was sort of fixing the front of house, which was which was a real challenge. I mean. I had worked in uh, front of house quite a bit in high school and a little bit college and a little bit after that, uh, just waiting tables to make money in culinary school, that sort of thing. 
but I never really felt drawn to be a front of house manager or a general manager or play that kind of role. Uh, so it really forced me into the dining room and reminded me about hospitality, which mm. was you know something that I really learned a lot about when I worked at West Paces and other places. But it, I had to kind of knock knock the rust off a little bit, and uh, it was it was a, a very good learning experience from that regard what advice do you have for going into an organization that was established without you you're coming in with all this experience knowledge and values uh, how do you bring people up to your standard without seeming like a huge dick like how do you, how do you come in and like say this is how we're going to do things now because like, I'm, I'm assuming there's a little bit of that going on where you had to come in and like you know you said you had to get rid of a bunch of people you had to so like what 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 are the things that you have to do to, to turn a culture around well you know, it's never a pleasant thing firing people or letting yeah. people go. Uh, but one important lesson that I've learned in my career is that sometimes it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Why is uh, that? Well, it, negativity breeds negativity. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's just, uh, you just have to rip the bandaid off. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's never pleasant. Um, but again, it, it, it I've worked in a lot of kitchens. I've worked in kitchens where chefs are cussing and screaming and yelling. And I've worked in kitchens where it's virtually silent. And everyone, you know, the only noise you hear is a knife chopping or a whisk in a bowl or something like that. Um, and I land somewhere in the middle. I'm not perfect. You know, sometimes I'll lose my cool. It, it takes a lot to, for these days for me to get my cage rattled. But, um, you know, I, I'm big on coaching and constant, you know, constant coaching and I'm not, I'm certainly not a micromanager. I think you could ask any one of my employees here right now and they'd be like, Oh yeah, Dan's not a micromanager at all. I certainly give people a lot of leash. Um, but I'll be the first one to call somebody out when I see something that's not right. Um, and I'll try and help them fix the problem first. You so, know? so how do you call them out in a way that's non-confrontational that they know that you're not like coming at them, but it's more of a supportive calling out. I, I ask a lot of questions. You know, and it, some of them are leading questions and some of them are very direct and specific. Um, but, you know, without without being too abrasive or confrontational, I'll, I'll you know, I might, for example, um, I was in my kitchen the other day here at Draft House and uh, we were doing some R&D for this uh, market that I'm helping open in La Jolla. It's called Valley Farm Market La Jolla. It's going to be this really cool high-end market where we're going to focus a lot on prepared foods, grab and go items. And I'm helping my good friend, Derek, the owner develop that whole food service program. And so we use dry the kitchen at draft house to do some R and D on some different dishes that we want to serve. And I just happened to be back on the line and I was cooking and I was working with my chefs back there. And, and I grabbed a, a French roll that we were going to use, uh, that is something that we serve at draft house. And, and I, it was in this bag that was kind of in the back of this bin. And I was like, Oh, this is kind of weird. There's just one left in this bag. I'll use this one. And I pulled it out and it was moldy. And it was clear that, you know, there was newer bread that had just been set on top of it. And it was just kind of an oversight. And just my sous chef happened to be here that day. You know, that was a bad day for him. He was, he was very upset, you know, and I, I just asked him, I was like, Hey, you know, are you checking the bread every day? And he was like, Oh no, you know, I check all the sauces. I check all the garnishes. I did, you know, I didn't check the bread today. And I was like, okay, well do me a favor, you know, from now on, check the bread every morning when you come in. And it's important to do it at the end of the day, too. Let's make sure everything's wrapped properly and it's put away properly. And he was mortified. That's, you know, I'm not in my, I'm not in my kitchen every day anymore. So for me to come in and just happen to be when the, our executive chef is not here and he's the only one here and he's he's terrified. You know, I, I'm not a scary guy. Yeah. But he just, 
is the type of guy that takes an awful lot of pride in his work. Yep. And he was just, I think he was embarrassed more than anything, which yep. I can certainly relate to. I've been there. Yeah. But, you know, and I, I could have thrown it at him and cussed and screamed and yelled. And why is there moldy bread in our kitchen and on my line and my kitchen and all this stuff? But, you know, I just asked him, I said, you know, did you check the bread today? And his, I, could, I could feel his heart sinking, you know. He and, knew something was coming. Right. <laughs> yeah. and, you know, and, and he reacted the way that I w- hoped that he would. He, you know, he takes a lot of pride in his work. And uh, I know for a fact that he's going to check that bread every single day <laughs> from now for, till forever. So in, in that approach that you use, just asking the question, essentially what you're doing is you're, you're giving him that opportunity to um, – address the issue before coming being being come came down on right mm-hmm. like he could he could lie to you but yeah i checked it which would have made the situation probably worse but you're sure. giving him the opportunity to be like no i didn't actually do that and wh- what exactly is like the 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 thought process behind that approach what was going through your, your mind well i'm always going to give someone the opportunity to say you know what no i messed yeah. up mm-hmm. you know and and then it's like okay well let's find a, a solution together yeah. you know like maybe this is a better approach yeah. to this or what do you think you know what's a what's a way we can prevent this from happening in the future you know that's there's a couple of different directions that could have gone um but i always like to give people that opportunity mm-hmm. so speaking of opportunities um how did you come across this opportunity at the corner draft that's uh, well, it's funny, actually. So my business partner here, Dave Creviston, uh, he was, when I started working for Cisco in San Diego, he was opening uh, his other restaurant, the Beer Garden of Encinitas, uh, which was the first account that I opened when I worked for Cisco. Okay. So, you know, he, he didn't want to work with us at first. But once he and I got to know each other and he was in the process of opening that restaurant and I found ways to make myself sort of indispensable as his sales rep and you know we became very fast so he saw the value in your in your knowledge right because you had that business relationship where you're you're serving him helping him and he's probably like wow this guy knows what he's talking about yeah absolutely yeah did he approach you with this opportunity how did that whole so i came back from you know we, we we became good friends outside of our business relationship and even when i left cisco we hung out a lot and we talked when i while i was in kansas city i'd bounce ideas off of him as a you know as a restaurant owner challenges that i was coming up against while i was there and um so when I got back to San Diego, we started talking and he was kind of in a place where his other restaurant was doing really well and he was kind of looking for another opportunity and I was certainly in a similar situation. So we started looking for, for projects and uh, we're like-minded people and we approach things very similarly. And mm-hmm. uh, he has kind of a, his background is construction and that's part of opening a restaurant that had always intimidated me because I've just heard horror stories about yep. people losing fortunes during build-out and permitting and everything else. And so I knew that he could bring a lot of experience in that regard. And I certainly have a lot of operational experience and culinary experience. So we're, we, we have really complementary skill sets. What about the values um, that this, this uh, David has? Uh, what was it about him that you knew this relationship was going to work beyond having the skill sets that complement each other? What else was it about this relationship? Um, I think we have very similar uh, sort of business philosophies when it comes to things like how a business should perform, what the expectations are and how you get there. Mm -hmm. Um, Also things like um, sort of opinions about things like food and service and aesthetic 
um, which Same are taste. important. Yeah. Yeah. So who was the first person to say something? Like, let's let's open this, this business. I, you know, I honestly, I think the conversation just kind of evolved over time yeah. where it was like, oh, you're, you know, you're looking, I'm looking like, you know, what do you think of this project? What do you think of that project? And, yeah. and then we kind of were like, well, yeah, let's, well, let's do something together. So the things I'm pulling from this, you got to have the same values, right? You got to mm-hmm. be aligned with your values. And you also, the best partnerships are partnerships where you complement each other, where you can be in your lanes and execute on a different level if you didn't have somebody who was strong where you're weak, right? Trust is incredibly important too. Yeah. You know, I mean, a business partnership truly is a marriage. Mm-hmm. And if you can't 100% trust the person that you're doing business with, you definitely should not be in that relationship. So how do you keep this high level of trust? What's the secret to having that trust in your relationship? It's built over time. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there are, there are a lot of tests that come up um, in business that, uh, you know, you just... You have to have confidence that that other person is going to do the right thing. Mm. And and you've got to watch each other's back. You know, I mean, that's incredibly important. So all the things that you've experienced up to this point, going into business, opening the corner bar, I'm sorry, the, the corner draft house, uh, what things were you doing intentionally because of the experiences that you had? The things that you, what were the mistakes you didn't want to make again? Um, what things that you, what things made this location successful, knowing what you know today? Uh, well, it's it, honestly, it's kind of the culmination of, of a lot of things that I've learned in my career. Certainly, uh, food is inc- incredibly important. You know, in San Diego, craft beer is a huge deal. Uh, we have 70 taps here at, at, at the Corner Draft House, and almost all of them are Southern California craft beer. Um, so sort of embracing that. Uh, and then again, you know, we this was a uh, white tablecloth French restaurant yep. uh, when we acquired it with floor-to-ceiling floral drapes and all kinds of crazy artwork and I was very, very tired. And so, you know, I mean, if you would, if you saw pictures of what it looked like then and what it looked like now, and, and Dave and I did the majority of the build out ourselves, okay. you know, with, with our own hands and design I mean, and everything or do you do yeah, outsourcing? No design and everything. Oh. Uh, and so, you know, I can, I can literally say that there isn't a, a single thing in here that my hands haven't touched, you know? So, um, you know, you, you, especially I think with your first restaurant, you really like, you kind of pour your heart and soul into it and, um, our goal with this place was always to sort of surprise people with the food. Uh, you know, there, there are a lot of craft beer bars in San Diego, but I think a lot of them really, the food is kind of an afterthought. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, coming into this place and especially kind of with my background, with a lot of the fine dining experience, uh, it's been kind of fun to do more casual food. I mean, the way I've always described the menu is it's food. I like to eat when I go out, yeah. you know, I mean, no one can eat foie gras and, Every and truffles every day, right? Yeah. So you you mentioned uh, the importance of uh, identifying an opportunity, a niche in the market, right? And then filling that that void. What mm-hmm. was missing in this neighborhood at that time? Because there was no shortage of beer, right? We well, identified this area as being high in, in microbreweries and nanobreweries. In in San Diego, in general, yes, there's a ton of microbreweries. In our neighborhood, in particular, Bankers Hill, there was not anyone really focusing on craft beer. Uh, and there's nothing there at the time there was nothing really casual. Uh, so that's, that's really kind of how, I mean, my original vision for this space was to do like a super cool trendy restaurant. But once we really started looking around the area, there's a lot of fine dining restaurants in this area. And so we said, you know what, there's nowhere where you can go with a group of friends for brunch, or you can go sit at the bar and watch a game and have a burger and a beer or take a girl on a date without having to break the bank. Mm. And so that's really kind of how we landed on this concept. Okay, so you're trying to to a broad or appeal to that broader in the middle market where it wasn't mm-hmm. quite fine dining, but it wasn't too casual either. Yeah, and I think a concept like this is a little bit more recession proof mm-hmm. too. Uh, Why is that? 
Well, just, you know, you go from being the uh, place where you go to be and be seen and go for that special occasion when the economy tightens up a little bit, you know, you start fre- frequently yeah. frequenting those places a little bit less while, you know, the place. But you still have the habit, right? Right. You still have the habit and, and the place down the street that's just a little bit less expensive is becomes a lot more appealing. So you had tons of experience going into this restaurant. What were the things that you didn't prepare for? What were the things that blindsided you with this opening? Well, you know, with all of the openings that I've I've done in my career, which are quite a few, hotels and restaurants, there's always, always. surprises, always, always yeah. learning. You know, uh, as an uh, this is my first time out, truly as an owner. You know, from from conception to operating the business, um, I've certainly written a lot of menus and come up with concepts, and but I've I've never negotiated a lease before, and I've never. Um, you know, we, our current landlord just changed. And so now we're going through a whole nother round of sort of trying to hash things out and try and serve our business best, best interests. And, um, I wish I had paid a little bit more attention to the accounting classes in college. You know, I mean, uh, there's, there's, you're constantly learning and there's, you know, all the, 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 I think anybody you ask in this industry will always say the hardest thing is, is people, right? Mm. And because at the end of the day, you're only as good as your, your best and your worst employee, right? Um, so, you know, you get into some things with workers' comp claims and different things like that. And a lot of times it's just a distraction or, you know, a disgruntled employee or someone maybe you never should have hired in the first place. But um, any less lessons, like specific lessons uh, that you, you learned over the past four years now, right? 2015 mm-hmm. to yeah. now um, that you can share with our listeners to maybe help them prevent making that same oversight or mistake. Uh, gosh. Well, I will say um, something specific and something we're kind of dealing with right now. And I don't, I don't know how much of this I should really discuss, <laughs> but um, when you're when you're negotiating your lease with your landlord, I would I you know we something we didn't do is we we had a lawyer review it, but it was just kind of a yeah it looks good you know it looks like everything's there that should be there but um, we was, really was we, this a friend doing a favor or do you hire somebody kind of a friend okay. slash yeah so maybe someone that had a little bit more expertise uh, in specific dealing specifically with lease negotiations in terms of protections in case certain things happen uh, would have benefited us. Um, But those those are lessons you learn, right? What's what's one, um, I guess, section in the lease agreement that your lease could have had like what's the title of that section that we need to research that uh, incorporate if, if into the our, if the property is sold okay. i think that's an important one if the property is sold yeah if there's some sort of transaction what? that happens if this, you know, then we, that. we had a we had a first rider refusal to buy uh if the property became you know came up for sale or someone tried to buy it um we are in a big mixed use development where there's 178 condo units above our building and it was kind of messy the way they broke it up because originally it was an apartment complex and then the owner decided to break it up into condominiums, but then he sold the whole first floor as commercial. So, I mean, the whole first floor of the building just sold for quite a substantial amount of money. So obviously we weren't in a good position to buy the entire first floor and parking garage of our structure. So, you know, that wasn't even really an option, but there was some other clauses that could have worked in our better interest 
dealing with things like increases of assessed value and property taxes and those sort of things. And, Got you. Uh, I, mean, I think I did I dedicated a whole episode to uh, clauses and sections that your lease should have. So I'll be sure to link to that in the yeah. show notes. Um, so uh, this is episode 676. So head over to restaurantstoppable.com slash 676. I'll link to that episode where we go into detail the things you should consider in your lease. I'll also link to the horse uh, Schultze episode. Horst, I don't know why I struggle with his name so much. Can you say it for me real quick? Horst Schultze. Horst Schultze. I'll, I'll yeah. schedule both of his episodes where... Mr. Uh, Schultze. Mr. Schultze. He tells his whole life story in the first episode. Second episode, he um, shares those 27 standards of service and we go through each one. So it's really great stuff. Probably one of the most downloaded episodes of all Restaurant Unstoppable. So... Um, one other thing I really want to get from you, um, you're the executive chef at this restaurant? Or, or? Uh, I have an executive chef okay. that, that runs my kitchen. So, now, when, you know, I, I was the executive chef for probably the first 18 months. Gotcha. And then uh, we brought in Ruben, who's been running the kitchen since then. And um, I still have some involvement. Uh, we change our menu about three times a year. So anytime there's a new menu rollout, Ruben and I get together and we look at uh you know i'm I'm big on analytics so we look yep. at the data and see what's moving and what's not and we pull p mixes and uh for different periods of time and there's a lot of seasonality that goes informs you know sort of what choices we make things we're adding and taking off the menu so take us through that process of working in your restaurant to working on your restaurant because you you transition i think it's really empower important that we we learn how to be in that place where we're not trapped in our restaurant every day so we can so we have the time to look at the analytics so we can break it down so we can strategize right how did you make that transition it's not easy <laughs> yeah it's not easy you know i i was incredibly involved in every aspect of of the operation and it's an important point to make uh, learning how to operate on the business and not in the business um, and it sounds, you know, I used to hear people say that and I'd be like, Oh, that guy yeah, just doesn't yeah, want to work anymore, yeah. you know? Um, but it's, it's truly important. And, uh, the work and, doesn't slow down. Well, the work doesn't work slow down. Now. You, you certainly are, are as engaged, if not more engaged, you're engaged in different ways. But the important lesson I learned from that is allowing my managers to really flourish in their roles where they're not coming to me for every answer to every question where they're actually having to figure things out on their own. And then they're, you know, they, 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 they then they start growing by leaps yeah. and bounds. You so know? what did you do to get to that point where they aren't coming to you, where they're growing on their own? Like, how do you get to that tipping? You point? have to create some boundaries. Okay. Right. I mean, it, it, sometimes it's, you know, you get the phone call and it's like, well, I don't know. What would you do? You know, that, that sort of, and maybe, maybe not, you know, there's probably better ways to say that, but it's, it, it is creating some boundaries. Well, it's also getting them to, to think on their own. Right. Like, like, you know, like you are able to come to these conclusions on your own. You don't need me to tell you. So you're empowering them by not giving them the answer. Like, I don't Correct. know. Like, you tell me. Yeah. And it reminds me. So I was a commercial pilot before getting back into hospitality. And when I was in a fight or when I was going through the... The, the training of the flight instructors would they know the answers but they would never tell you because when you're at you know 10,000 feet and you need to get the answer like you need to know where to, to find it in the book you don't even know, yeah. you don't even need to know the answer you just need to know where to find it right? right and i think that's another thing too did you give them the tools to be able to find the answers is there like a protocol sheet or anything like that well you guys it, a lot of it is systems right you have yeah. opening checklists and closing checklists and maintenance schedules and cleaning schedules and you know there's certainly a playbook there um, and, and again, my managers know that I, you know, I've got a pretty, pretty big open door policy where call me anytime, any, you know, if, if there are any issues, I just had to come in the other day and, 
and work through some HR issues with my general manager, which I was happy to do. My general manager rarely asks me for help. So when she does, I'm all over it. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, those systems are important um, because again, it kind of goes back to like Mr. Schultz's standard as a service. It's like if everybody knows what the expectations are and then that takes a lot of the guesswork out of it. Then you can focus on other things. You can focus on fun things like um, special events or, you know, we've, we've added a lot of third party delivery services and different things like that. Just trying to figure out ways to drive revenue. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Uh, Anything we have not discussed up to this point um, that you were hoping we would discuss about you and your business and what you think you do well that has put you in this position. I, I feel like we've kind of covered a lot of ground. <laughs> we have covered a lot of ground. Um, one thing, I mean, I was kind of setting this up to when I talk about moving um, from working on your business to, or from working in your business to on your business is you're, you're consulting. You, now mm. you're, you're freeing yourself up, right? So you have this, this business that's a channel of revenue for you and your family, but now you can open up other channels of revenue by sharing your knowledge and helping um, other businesses open and compete against you in your own market. Why, why isn't that an issue for you, like helping other business owners? I'm curious. Uh, well, you know, if somebody decided to open up a gastro pub across the street, I probably wouldn't be over there <laughs> sharing recipes with them. Yeah, but, I um, I, I, you know, part of it I think is a desire to help people. Um, you know, I've done a lot of consulting over the years just for friends, helping friends redo their menus or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, working on implementing systems for things like, uh, inventory control or purchasing or sharing advice about how to deal with vendors from, some of my experiences um but it's it's yeah you're right too i mean it's also a revenue stream it's it's a way to stay busy and earn some more money without having to dive into you know the deep end with a whole new restaurant i'm sure it keeps you fresh too you know makes Mm -hmm. you look into like you know opening a restaurant even like four years is a big difference in this market it's always changing like what's what's what are the new options today what's what's what are the new technologies we can be leveraging right right so i'm sure that helps keep you fresh um you mentioned earlier that there is this nightclub eye-opening experience what exactly was that experience that i opened well a lot a lot of it is kind of what you just touched on i mean as as you said it's been four years since i opened my restaurant so it was a whole nother round of meeting with all the point of sale companies and trying to see what the best technology is out there and how to best leverage that and how to get the best price and which systems are more effective if you're doing high volume bar business versus working with third party delivery services or what reporting looks like now and what our integration is with credit card processing and what that looks like. What was was the specific eye opening moment? What was the one thing that you like, you were like, I didn't even know that was an option or oh really like that. That's what's happening right now. I'm like, what were you referencing in that in that eye-opening experience? Uh, well, a lot of the integrations with the different platforms and point of sales now. You know, third-party delivery has become such a big thing in the industry, and I don't know where it's going to go. I, I know that it's important to be involved with it right now, um, and that landscape seems to be constantly shifting. But a lot of, you know, some of the new systems or some of the new versions of existing systems are very well integrated with those, uh, you know, and communicate well, like Aloha and Toast and Bread, you know, some of these, some of these point of sale systems are very adept to all those things. They plug in easily. Others yeah. do not. So can you give us a specific like lesson um, of which tools play in nice with which other tools or which ones Aloha seems to be the best still um, okay. when we first opened draft house micros was still kind of a big thing and they are a big player yeah. um, if I had to do it all over again I'd, I probably would have gone with Aloha and spent the extra 10 grand or whatever it was um, what is it that they do that's worth the 10 extra grand well 
And this is different market by market, I'm sure, but the, the customer service they have here on the ground seems to be far superior to the customer service that Micros has you available. You cannot underestimate customer service. Well, it's incredibly yeah. important. And, and, you know, if your point of sale system crashes, that is your the absolute lifeline yeah, of your business. Exactly. And, you know, on a Friday, busy Friday night, you could lose thousands of dollars. Um, so and, you've got to be able to re- come to a resolve as fast as possible. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you can't be on the phone with somebody in another country trying to troubleshoot. Yeah. You know, you need somebody that you can actually talk to or can come to your business and help you navigate through whatever issues might be happening. Awesome. A lot of it is, too, is uh, portability. You know, I mean, a lot of these new systems where you have the handheld devices for, for and it's not for every operation, but if you're big enough and you're busy enough, that can certainly add a lot of efficiencies to your business. For and that's sure. So important in a market like California where minimum wage keeps going up and up and yep. up. And this is a unique, California is unique to most states in the United States where we don't have a tip credit. So every single front of house employee in our restaurant makes minimum wage, which is for San Diego city of San Diego is $12 and 50 cents. So they're making, you know, they're earning a little, quite a few tips and then minimum wage on top of that. So that's, that's a totally different animal than most markets, you know, most cities, most restaurants I've ever worked in. So that we have to kind of be nimble. Yeah. Um, I think I've asked all my questions. The one, the one question that I always leave for the very end, though, is uh, like I mentioned, that the, the mission statement is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. So, how have you transformed? Who are you today versus the man you were getting started in this industry? Gosh, uh, I will say that I've certainly slowed down quite a bit. You know, I I used to be, uh, you know, the guy, the chef that would get off work and go to the bar and close the bar and all that kind of stuff. And how getting married and having kids, I'm sure, has played a big part yeah. of that. But I look back and I, I wish a little bit that I had taken better care of myself back then. And I, I think that's kind of a big trend in the industry right now among a lot of chefs. Is, yeah. Um, you self-care. Know, self-care, yeah. Um, you know, I hear I hear a lot of chefs talking about it, which is pretty exciting, really, because forever, you know, it was the exact opposite, where it was, it was almost like you embrace this culture of, you know, how bad can I be? Or, you know, you want to, you want to be the last one at the bar or yeah, self care is how hard can I have a good food. time? <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so, you know, I, I would say that looking back, I wish I had focused more on taking care of myself awesome. uh, all over it. the years. I have loved this conversation. We're going to take one more quick break to thank our sponsors. We'll come back to bust out a quick speed round. If you're sick of paying multiple vendors and services to outfit your restaurant needs only to deal with the frustrations of technology that's clunky and void of that seamless experience that you so need, then you've got to check out Restaurant 365, a cloud-based restaurant-specific accounting and back-office platform that seamlessly integrates with your POS system, payroll provider, food and beverage vendors, and banks. With Restaurant 365, you'll have real-time reporting and analysis to make the best and most data-driven decisions no more guessing. Other features include detailed daily and labor data from your POS system, accounts payable automation, automated bank reconciliation, incorporated inventory management with guidance on reducing your food costs, and scheduling features to reduce labor costs and engage your employees, all saving you time, money, and headaches. Take action today and find out how Restaurant 365 is saving restaurant owners up to 5% on prime costs that's awesome head over to restaurant365.com slash unstoppable and qualify for 30 percent off implementation and get a free inventory build within the system a value of 5k we're back and the first question i have for you is what is your it factor a habit a trait a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success persistence 
What does he bring us weakness? Uh, gosh. My biggest weakness. I, I get too emotionally involved in things. How do you draw that line now? That Now that you're aware of this, this weakness, how are you compensating for it? Uh, I have to force myself to take a step back. It's, 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 a, it's a learning process. Got you. Uh, what is one question you ask or thing you look for during the interview process when you're building that team? I, I, you know, I ask a lot of, without getting too personal, I ask a lot of kind of direct questions. You know, I, I'll say things like, do you play well with others? You know, yeah. where it's, I'm asking if you work well with others, but it's a little bit disarming. You know, I want, I want to get to know somebody during yeah. an interview. I want to know what their personality so is. Just put like. a little bit of pressure on them to see how they handle pressure and yeah. see if they're getting defensive and things like that. So mm-hmm. you're not listening to what they're saying, but you're listening to how they're reacting. I'm, I'm paying attention to all of it. Yeah. <laughs> Got you. Oh, uh, share uh, your biggest challenge today. Ooh. Um, the labor market in San Diego is incredibly challenging. Uh, as I was saying earlier in the in the interview, I mean it's it's there. There's been an explosion of restaurants in San Diego, and so the labor pool hiring is, pool is hiring pool is yeah. And Everybody says that the pool shrinking, but I feel like the pool the source was the same. But there's just more people drinking from it. Yeah, well, <laughs> and, and in Southern California, we have so much new development. I was talking to a friend the other day that is in construction, and they're you know they're hiring guys. For forty dollars an hour to push a broom in a par- you know in a parking lot, it's like yeah, it, or somebody's going to go drive an Uber or something <laughs> like that. You know, and, what are you doing to overcome this? Uh, just try and provide the best workplace environment that we possibly can. You know, and we pay what we can afford, mm-hmm. which is uh, as good or better than most places. Mm. What is one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team? This is a way to be, a way to act, the core value. As I said at the at the top of the the podcast, I mean, I, we always do the right thing because it's always the right thing to do. I mean, that's that's truly what I believe. I love it. What is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team that's common within your four walls, but not common within the industry? I can think of at least twenty seven that I know you know. <laughs> uh, gosh, I wish I could remember all twenty seven. <laughs> right. No. Um, we really emphasize the importance of guest interaction here, uh, and I'm sure this probably draws from several of Mr. Schultz's fundamentals. But um, and it's it's small things. It's it's in the devil's in the details. It's eye contact. It's it's highs and goodbyes. It's learning someone's name, remembering what their favorite drink is, asking, remembering what they were talking about the last time they were in, and asking them about it. What tools do you provide them to be able to do this? Uh, it's a lot of. <laughs> going back to Mr. Schultz, it's a lot of repetition yeah. of, you know, just keeping people focused on those things that are important. Mm. Uh, and it's, it's hard to do. Mm. Um, but that's, that's really what it boils down to. What is one book that's a must read to make us a better person or a restaurant owner? Uh, gosh, you know, horse has his own book out now. I right? do. Yeah, I do. I haven't read it yet. I need yeah. to, I need to pick it Those up. Standards are in that book as well. I'm sure they yeah. are. Yeah. Uh, I think it's, um, I can't remember the title. I should, I'll link to it in the show notes, but it's like something like the, something excellence, excellence in business, excellence wins. Sorry, horse. If you're listening to this, yeah. we'll link to it. Uh, I really like seven habits of highly effective people. Mm. What's um, your favorite habit? Ooh. Putting you on the spot. Totally putting me on the spot. <laughs> um, Something I noticed with you is, is, is that you seem to be doing is sharpening the sword. Yeah, or well, the saw, it's the saw. The saw. Thing, yeah, the, the I would say constant improvement yeah. is probably my biggest. I picked up on that for sure. Yeah. Uh, okay. This is the last. Actually, it's not the last question. It used to be the last question. 
but it's not anymore because I've added a question. So what is one service you've invested in? Not necessarily a, a technology, but like a person, like a consultant or an expert that you've gone to that has served you well and that you're willing to recommend to other restaurant operators looking for the same service? Uh, you know, marketing is always a challenge uh, when it comes to restaurants. And forever we did, eh, we've kind of gone back and forth where we handle our own social media or we outsource it. Um, we hired a PR company about a year ago uh, that we've really been pleased with and they've kind of re-engineered our social media the other one that we outsourced in the last year is um, we found a company in Southern California that handles all of our accounting, bank reconciliations, credit card reconciliations, and payroll. We were able to kind of c- consolidate all those things under one roof. Yeah, especially and, with labor, the cost of labor going up. If you can, if you can outsource this stuff, and yeah. you know, it saves. And a bunch, like how does that benefit you and your business when you outsource these things? Well, and, and truth be told, they actually they. In the last couple of months, they've taken over a lot of our human resource activities, okay. too, where they came in and they redid our entire employee handbook and made sure that we had all the documentation that was necessary to kind of help protect ourselves from liability. Yeah, which, 21st century. Yeah, it's so <laughs> important. Changing, it's yeah. so important. Uh, and particularly in California, it's important. But um, honestly, I think our business is performing better than it ever has. And that's a big part of it. Um, can you share these companies? You mentioned one was yeah, the so, publicist, the other uh, one was HR. The first one is called, uh, the, the company that we use for our marketing and uh, social media is called PR Chemistry. PR Chemistry. Uh, and they're based out of downtown San Diego in Hillcrest. And then uh, Flores Financial is the name of the company that we work with for all of our accounting and human resources and payroll. And that was Flores. Mm-hmm. F-L-O-R-E-S, yeah. Got you. Thank you very much. And uh, the next question is, one, what is one piece of technology you've adopted? So this isn't a service, or it could be a, a software as a service that yep. you've adopted and that you're leveraging within your business. So uh, there's a couple. As I mentioned, we're, we're using some of the third-party delivery. Uh, we use Grubhub, Uber Eats, and DoorDash. And we started with DoorDash, then we added the other two. Um, I don't think our food translates particularly well to delivery, mm. just the format. Um, but uh, being the father of two young children and my wife and I, if we don't have dinner figured out by five o'clock, we're pulling <laughs> yeah. up the nap and we're getting something delivered. And you always end up looking at two or three menus before you select whatever food you're going to have delivered. And so my takeaway was it's just important to have a presence on there, if nothing else, because you end with the revenue sharing, you know, you don't really end up making an enormous profit off those sales. Yeah. Um, my, my biggest concern always was what's, what's the guest experience like? Yeah. Is it, is it our, putting our best foot forward in terms of the food or in terms of the service? Yeah. Um, but because that's, that's outside of my control now. A right? lot of people look at these delivery services as lead generation, right? Because you're going to mm-hmm. search for something. It's marketing. You well. Yeah, you're going to come up as a search result. And the trick is, from what I understand, and I'm not an expert on this, I'm learning too, is to try to get them off of those those devices where they're where they're discovering you and you're delivering to get them to order on your own website, right? Correct. Um, how are you, are you are you making an effort to do that? So we did. We updated our website about six months ago to make it sort of mobile first. Yeah. Uh, which. I think has benefited us quite a bit. Um, and we just started kind of focusing on some SEO stuff, which we had not done previously. Um, I mean, we literally didn't advertise the first two years we were in business. Uh, and 
over time, it's become pretty apparent to me how important it is to be engaged in, in certain areas. And, um, and it, but we did some things before. We're, we're partnered with the Old Globe Theater here in Balboa Park. We're one block from Balboa Park in downtown San Diego where the San Diego Zoo is. And we support some local organizations, and that was kind of our engagement before. But now uh, I've, I've learned quite a bit about the power of social media yeah. and, and how important it is to be engaged. Which in some are all platforms. things you wouldn't have been able to learn about or act on if you didn't remove yourself from working in the business. Or, you, yeah, you're 100% so. right. I wouldn't have had time, uh, to be completely honest. Yeah. And the, the other, uh, talking about technology, we partnered with Upserve a couple years ago, which has, has been a really good partner for us. They've uh, you know, you can get all these analytics out of out of Micros and your point of sale, and Micros in particular is, is not great. I mean, it's, it's there, but you have really have to extrapolate a lot of the data to make it useful. Um, Upserve is a credit card processing company. Um, they also have some point of sale uh, hardware and software, but we primarily use them uh, for credit card processing, and they provide a lot of analytics about our business. Everything from comps and voids to sales to different servers and their performance and their check averages, as well as they provide you with a list of your best yeah. customers and your best selling items in different categories. And it's it's a really useful daily, weekly, monthly snapshot where everything's kind of right there. Yeah, and Upserve is one of my affiliates. So if you guys oh, are interested okay. in learning more <laughs> about Upserve, uh, they pair well with uh, you mentioned earlier, Micros Aloha is probably what they're best in bed with yeah. um, and I think I mean there's a ton of, I think Rebel pairs with them most services unless it's a closed platform right. if you're, like Toast for example is a closed platform because uh-huh. uh, they have their own credit card processing that's going to be the right. key if a POS has its own credit card processing it won't play well with Upserve but um, if you're yeah. interested in learning more please use my links because they have a great affiliate program and uh, you'll be supporting the podcast and this is the last question now you ready for it all right. and thank you for getting into all that detail that was, sure. that was awesome um, this is a doozy so if you got the news you'd be leaving this world tomorrow all the memories of you you're working your restaurant would be lost with your departure with the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you can leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy, what would those three pieces of wisdom be? Wow. The, the eye rolls I get with this question. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. I would say one, number one, and probably the most important one, is life is incredibly short and very precious. Uh, so It's one. Yeah. Live every day to the fullest and don't take anything for granted. I dig it. Um Two kind of ties into that where <laughs> my wife and I had a year where we said no to nothing. So, I mean, we didn't say yes to everything, but like <laughs> if, if some friends were like, Hey, let's go to Vegas this week. And we said, okay, yeah, let's go, oh, nice. you know, that sort of thing. And, and we did a lot of music festivals and took a lot of trips and vacation a lot. And it was kind of before we started having kids where we just wanted to sort of have as many experiences as we could. And so I guess my second one would be say yes more. Okay. Um, and then lastly, gosh, I feel like I'm getting like super While you're sappy. thinking about those, I'll, I'll uh, summarize. The first one is live life to the fullest. It's short. Say yes to not everything, but more things. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then the last one. Um, gosh. It's a tough question. I know. I feel like I'm like <laughs> super sappy with all these because I've what's got the, kids and I've lost some people close to me like what, recently. What's, but, what's the first thing that comes to your heart? go with it um, or is just nothing coming to you right now? no you know i was thinking something about trying new things and food and just like you know learning about different cultures that way because uh, that's something that's been very informative in my life um 
Open your stomach up to new yeah, cultures. Yeah, open your stomach up to new cultures. There you go. <laughs> awesome. You I love it. it. This has been a great conversation. We wrap up every chat by calling somebody out. So who do you respect and admire? That's how I found you. I believe Sean called you out. Yep. Uh, Sean Walshiff called you out. So who do you respect and admire and believe would make a great guest mentor like you've made for us today? Yeah, I say give Chef Kenny a call. Call Chef Kenny Gilbert down yes. in uh, down in Florida. He's and in I, he's in Jacksonville. Go go hunt him down. Hunt, I, him, hunt him down. I plan on spending my January in Florida, so we can make that happen. And uh, right. how can we connect with you if we want to maybe come join your team or hire you as a consultant? What's the best way to connect? Yeah, uh, my email is dansobek at gmail dot com. D a n s s o b e k at gmail dot com. Uh, our website is www.thecornerdrafthouse.com. I'm on Instagram, SobekDan, at SobekDan, and uh, I'm on Facebook. And this is episode 676. Again, I'll link to, well, I'll summarize today's discussion. We'll link to any tool service or book that was recommended, as well as how to connect with Dan. And just, I can't say it enough, Dan. Thank you so much. Thank you, Eric. This has been a lot of fun. I wouldn't be able to do what I do without people like you sharing their their time and their knowledge. And there is no question, my dude, you are unstoppable. (laughs) (laughs) Cheers. Yeah, there we go. Another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable in the archive. I hope you all found value in today's conversation. And I could not be more excited to announce that Restaurant Unstoppable is now on video. That's right. I'm not talking about a still cover photo with audio on YouTube. I'm not even talking about a pixelated Skype video with me and my guests in, you know, 3,000 miles apart. I'm talking in person in the restaurant HD video now available on YouTube. And I could not be more excited. And you're going to be like right there with us in the restaurant. You're going to get to see behind the scenes footage, hopefully. And, you know, we've recorded over 50 interviews to date. And I've been taking the restaurant unstoppable now for uh, almost two years. We've been on the road. And the natural evolution is to bring a camera and to, to let you guys see my guests, to let you guys see the restaurant, to let you see the real human connection that's happening there. And uh, I'm just so excited. If you guys want to. See these videos. Here's what you got to do. Head over to YouTube and search Restaurant Unstoppable uh, and then subscribe to future episodes. Or what you can do is head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash whatever episode number it is. And I'll be sure going forward to have a link to that video or to that episode's video on YouTube. And please subscribe. And please, please, please help me spread the word about what, what, what I'm doing here with these interviews. Uh, the the you know the finest the most successful restaurateurs sharing their knowledge sharing their values sharing their stories to transform the industry to to make us all better and to uh, just just to you know go in a, the right direction uh, I cannot be more excited so again head over to restaurantunstoppable.com whatever today's restaurant or whatever today's episode number is, or just shoot to uh, YouTube and search Restaurant Unstoppable and subscribe to the face-to-face interviews. And uh, also, guys, I got to remind you to please subscribe to my emails and to find me on social media. Eric at restaurantunstoppable.com is the email. Social media, Eric Cacciatore in uh, Facebook slash Restaurant Unstoppable. Uh, cannot wait to connect. And I'm so, so, so excited for the future. This is going to be awesome. All right. Until next time, peace out.